0: This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by PivotBio Proven. Turn to a better nitrogen. Learn more at PivotBio.com. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McCray. I had heard about something called 100 Plus for Perry, so I made a trip to Perry, Iowa to check it out. What I found was an idea being used in some small towns in which local citizens commit to writing checks to help a number of causes close to home. It's a great way to raise big dollars quickly and engage the community in the effort. I'll tell you how they're doing it. And in the second half of the show, we'll take a trip to a historic winery with quite a story yet today. It's our topic for this week's Farming the Countryside, brought to you by Pivot Bio. If you ask farmers what their greatest concern is this year, they will likely say rising nitrogen prices. For our farm, higher nitrogen prices and our desire to increase bushels with more sustainable farming methods led me to Pivot Bio Proven 40, which can produce up to the equivalent of 40 pounds of synthetic nitrogen. Our field demonstrations show an opportunity for a better ROI and a reduction of synthetic nitrogen. Turn to a better nitrogen with Pivot Bio. I hope you'll learn more. Just go to pivotbio.com. As many of you know, I'm a big advocate for helping small towns and rural America find ways to survive and thrive. I'd heard about an effort in Perry, Iowa called 100 Plus for Perry. I met with Tom Lipovac and Linda Kaufman, who you'll hear from in a moment, who explained how it works. They are quick to share that they didn't originate the idea, but have adapted it to fit their community. There are variations of the plan, but I found it to be a great way to involve local citizens in making regular and meaningful contributions to great causes close to home. We often overlook how we can make a difference where we live because we simply aren't aware of the needs and the opportunities. I think you may be inspired as well by the work of this town. Tom, we're in Perry, Iowa. I might just begin by you speaking a little bit about how big is Perry, kind of describe the town, because I'd consider it to still be small town, kind of rural agricultural America here.
1: Uh, Perry is around, th- around 8,000, uh, our population. We're about 30 miles from Des Moines. We are a rural community, and through the years, we've changed. Our demographics are much more like an urban community in a rural setting. When I first came to Perry, it was a farm area, many families that were farmers, students that were farmers. We also had remnants of the railroad, and we've lost that. Uh, also, at one time, mining was in the area. Then we had Oscar Mayer, which was a tremendous employer as far as benefits. So some significant changes have taken place in Perry over the last 40 years. As you saw those changes
0: then, was Perry doing well? Was it growing? Was it just changing, or what changes did you see over time here in town?
1: Perry was a strong, working-class, rural-focused community. In this community, we have a, a John Deere equipment van wall, which is spread throughout the Midwest. We have Weiss and Osmondson and Progressive Foundry. They're all agriculturally focused with implements. Those factories still exist here, uh, that part of industry. Demographically, we've become more diverse, and we've become more impacted by uh, struggling families' socioeconomic status. So as time goes on then, take me up to,
0: we'll talk about this program, 100-plus for Perry. Did that grow out of a specific need that you all saw, or what was going on that— led about this group being formed Uh,
1: initially i turned on tv one night and saw a presentation with a group out of polk county known as 100 men on a mission and they would meet four times a month or excuse me four times a year and discuss ways they could improve their community and i did some additional research and came over a group 100 women for a cause and that intrigued me so i went to linda kaufman a staff member of ours at the time, who has since retired, was very heavily involved with service learning projects to see, is this a good idea? Is this something that would work? And then we reached out to Mark Pyle, who's a local attorney, a former student of ours. And between the three of us, we decided this is something that might work in our community.
0: So as you further kind of flushed out the idea, what began to take shape then? What was it that you ended up forming here?
1: Well, again, we started off, is this a good idea? And will it work? And we thought of starting small. And Mark said, no, we have to go beyond 100. So we came up with the idea of 100-plus people for Perry. And then we developed a very simple concept and a very simple strategy. We decided we'd meet four times a year. And at each of those quarterly meetings, we would present nonprofit projects that would benefit our community.
0: So describe how it works then, because people sign up for this program and they then are making a commitment that they are going to help fund some of these projects that are presented. Is that
1: right? Exactly. When you sign up, we ask you to commit for a year. And over that year, you would pledge to give $100 four times during the year, again, to a project that will impact, will better our community. It's our belief, uh, Mohandas Gandhi had a quote that, be the change in the world that you wish to see, and we felt that some simple gestures could impact our community's development our progress in just a, a very simple manner
0: all right so Linda, then walk me through what happens when I would come to a meeting I've made the commitment so what then what happens?
2: Uh, when you come in, you pick up a ballot and we have we start with a social time we always meet at La poste and so we people sit They come in, they sit down, and they um, talk among themselves, and if you have a project that you would like to present, when you come in, you write it on a slip of paper and put it in the box, and then when we start the meeting, we will draw three projects, and each of those projects, the spokesperson gets five minutes only, and we time them, Uh, you're not to use any kind of visual um, like a PowerPoint anything like that you get five minutes to speak about the project and then there's a period a short period people can ask questions for clarification and after the three projects have been presented people get the ballot out and they vote on the one they want to win so to speak And after the ballots are counted, Tom generally announces who to write the checks to. And everyone in the room then very happily writes a check for $100 to that project.
0: So about how many people then would be on an average meeting? I know they're signing up for all year, but about how many people are involved in the program. And I'm interested, too, how many people actually put a slip in the paper paper in the box each time? Does a high percentage come with the project?
2: No, actually, people we have found are far more willing to write the check than to speak. And what I had hoped, and I guess what Tom and I and Mark had thought, was that people would begin to look around Perry. And they would begin to kind of research where the need is and what the... You know, even what the nonprofits are in town, because people really didn't know. We still struggle. Um, on a good night, we'll have four or five projects in the box, and then we'll pull three from that. And uh, and most times, the people who aren't pulled or who speak and aren't selected. We'll put a slip in the next meeting and continue. Sometimes they'll present maybe three times before they're selected, which is okay. You know.
0: But usually, if you put something in the box, sometime you're maybe going to get funded, it sounds like. <laughs> uh,
2: well, we we would hope so. It doesn't always work that way, but um, what it's a learning experience. There are things that we have supported that I didn't know existed, Sleep space is one that one of the churches supports, and they provide bedding and beds for children who don't have those, who have a family but don't have a place to sleep. I'd never heard of that. So it really is intended, one of the things, I think, to make you more aware of what's going on in town. Um, if, you, if you're a member and you can't attend, you can always drop your check off Um, sometimes people drop a check off with another person or they, they drop it off at the door. And then if someone gives me the check, they give me the, um, responsibility of voting for them because we don't take time to make a phone call and say, okay, these are the three projects. What do you want me to vote for? Um, you're just trusting me to cast your ballot. And then I would fill in the line on that check and then let you know later what, what you had supported. Uh, We might have anywhere from um, on a good night, maybe 40 ballots cast. Uh, Sometimes, you know, during COVID it was done uh, by Zoom and that was a lot trickier. But then uh, Tom sends out an email saying, this is what we selected. If you were not able to attend, did not send your check, you can drop your check at the law office a uh, Mark Powell's law office, and then he collects the checks, and then he takes them to the, the place that has been selected.
0: You mentioned one of the uh, programs that's been funded, but give me an idea, or give folks an idea of some of the different projects that have been funded over time.
2: Okay, we have done. Uh, let's see, shop with a cop. We've done uh, toys for tots. We have done um, Pace's summer programming, which is through the school. Uh, we have done the police memorial. We supported that. Um, we have done uh, the building fund for the food pantry and just supported the food pantry. Uh, we've supported Rock the Block, uh, the public library. Uh, there are any number of things that have been presented. I think we have a, a nice variety of things that have appealed. You know, some things automatically appeal. Um, Shop with a Cop and Toys for Tots obviously you know if you present those before christmas at the fall meeting chances are but you can only that nonprofit can only be selected once annually so some of the things we have supported have been through the school because the school is a nonprofit and um so that is done then the school would be finished for the year no more presentations even though the projects are different uh, if the nonprofit's been selected, then it has to wait a whole year before it can be selected again.
0: It looks like that from your donation list, around $7,000 a lot of times is given each quarter to some of these organizations.
2: Uh, yeah, we it it all depends. You know, with COVID, it was different. Um Sometimes um you know we don't come out where we think we are and we have to stop and reevaluate because we ask people at the beginning of the year if you've changed your mind and don't want to continue membership please let us know we'll take you off the email list sometimes people do and sometimes they don't so it's kind of a blurred number but ideally it would be 7000 and as Tom said earlier 100 plus we always have hopes to spread the word. And uh, even though we've been around now for, oh, I think, six years, there are a lot of people in Perry who have no idea what 100 plus is. So we just speak to, you know, organizations and try to get more members on board.
0: I can open this up to either one of you. I would be interested in, over time, what's been the reaction of, Not only the groups that receive, but the people that are part of this. Are you finding that it is something that's growing? More people are interested? Does it
1: come and go a little bit? What do you find? First off, organizations are are very appreciative. It's a grant program that is simplified in that there's no application, no formal application, no documents that are required. You're able to find a person who belongs to 100 plus. That's one of the requirements to present must be presented by a 100-plus member, or you must be a member of 100-plus. And membership's open to anybody at any time. And in that five-minute presentation, you have the opportunity to convince our organization that you have a valuable project. And they're all valuable, and it's very challenging many times to decide which project is most worthy of our support. And there are times, to be honest, that you end up writing a check to a project that was not your top choice. But the understanding is you will support the majority with that. We also have an honor system. We're not a collection agency. So we accept your pledge, and we hope that you come through on your pledge. For a member who was with us from the beginning, we just had our 24th meeting. So during that six-year period, you've given $2,400 to local projects, again, that are designed to benefit to improve our community. It's our town, and it's very easy to sit back in a community and complain about a town, complain about a direction, or to try to do something about it. We can be a blessing in a small way to organizations and individuals and hopefully have a positive impact on our community and that as people view Perry, Iowa, they think this is a place I want to be. This is a place I can make a difference. Perhaps the work in Perry, Iowa
0: will inspire you to do something similar where you live. I know Tom and Linda would be happy to share their insights. truly made a difference in their community. In the second half of this week's show, I'm taking you to Herman, Missouri to meet John Held. John's family owns Stonehill Winery, and that's a story in itself, but I found John had plenty of interesting facts to share as he not only talked about the story of his town, but also how some of those in his state helped save the French wine industry of all things. I think you'll enjoy what he has to share. So John, take me back to the beginnings of Herman, because this winery dates back almost to the
3: beginnings of the town. Yeah, the, the town of Hermann was established in 1837 by German immigrants. Um, and by 1847, Stone Hill was established by Michael Pachel. and it grew over the years to become the second largest winery in the nation, a really huge facility at its time. Over 1.2 million gallons of storage capacity. Then, unfortunately, Prohibition closed it down.
0: Even broader than Stone Hill, what was going on in this area? Because did you have lots of these wineries? I mean, this was a major, and still is, but a major grape growing region of the country, right?
3: <laughs> oh, absolutely. Stone Hill was the largest by far of the wineries. Uh, there are 62 documented wineries in and around Herman. And the best we can research, it was somewhere in the little over 2,500 acres of grapes that were being grown here. So really, this, this was a center of U.S. wine production for a, a great period of time in the 1800s. And the, some of the people involved were world-recognized in terms of uh, breeding grape varieties and knowledge of the grape's native species. And this became very important in the 1860s when an American native insect called phylloxera was uh, accidentally introduced into Europe and started wiping out those vineyards. The French were perplexed as to what was causing this. And it was actually a Missourian by the name of C.V. Riley who identified the causal insect of the disease, phylloxera. And and that was the key that opened it up. And then several uh, individuals in the U.S., including a couple of key individuals in Missouri, started shipping native plant material over to Europe, which was then used either as rootstocks and eventually in, in breeding hybrid varieties for resistance to the insect. So literally, Missouri and some of the Herman viticulturists played a key role in saving the European grape industry in the 1800s.
0: At this time when this is building up, kind of around Civil War time, you're building a lot of cellars here. They kind of describe what's built because it's extensive and it still exists today.
3: Yes, it uh, ended up being the largest series of arched underground cellars in the United States. There are nine um, underground cellars here at Stonehill. All but one are stone walls with vaulted arched brick ceilings and they're huge i mean think about 1.2 million gallons of oak cooperage filled that space before prohibition um, we utilize all but two of those cellars today and uh, you know very fortunate to have them well
0: is it still good for winemaking i mean some things stand the test of time it looks like this has.
3: oh yes you know the it's an ideal situation for oak cooperage and we have a lot of barrels uh in actually three of the cellars.
0: Talk about the artwork on some of those uh, for just a second. You mentioned the 12 apostles and things. That's fascinating to me that this was uh, kind of an artistic type of piece too.
3: Yeah. The, 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 one of the most beautiful cellars is the apostle cellar. It has three um, aisles and three vaulted arches supported by uh, two rows of columns. In the center aisle, there were 12 cast. Approximately 2,500 gallons capacity. We've found some documentation on that. And each cask had a life size carving of one of the 12 apostles on it. And very famous and beautiful in that era. And the other aisles also had carved casks. And uh, when Prohibition hit, those casks, the apostle casks, were disassembled. All the staves were lettered and coded so that they could be reassembled, and they were shipped out of the country. The local legend was that they were shipped back to Germany, but I, I, I struggle with that legend because of the time frame. We're talking just after World War I. Europe was in ruins. Uh, Germany was broke. It doesn't make sense to me. I think they went somewhere else logically uh, south seems more uh logical to me you know because there were german settlers in south america that were establishing wineries uh, wouldn't have had a huge cooperage industry Uh, maybe they ended up in some jamaican rum factory and maybe they were in a bootlegger's barn you know 10 miles from here we just don't know we know they left because we we have eyewitness reports that, uh, that we know of of the cast being shipped out of the town so what happened to this winery in this area then during Prohibition? So Prohibition uh, wiped out the wine industry because of all the Germans, the anti-German sentiment with World War I. Stone Hill, because of the huge series of underground cellars, was converted into a mushroom growing facility, a mushroom farm. So they uh, erected these wooden beds all through the cellars, floor to ceiling, filled them with compost and inoculated with the mushroom spores. And it became a huge mushroom-growing complex. And that went on until 1967. But in 64, the owner was planning his exit strategy and had a dream to see Stonehill become a winery again. My parents just happened to be growing grapes about 18 miles from here, a very small, four-acre Catawba vineyard. They were part of a grower's organization in southern Missouri that was marketing Catawbas. And Bill Harrison, the owner of the mushroom farm, contacted my dad and said, I have a business proposition for you. No risk. I'm not going to charge you anything. Just come and try out a winery in a small corner of the, the facility. Dad did. He didn't have anything to lose. He was just a poor farmer with a net worth of $1,200. And he took a gamble, and it paid off. That's what you grew up around then, all your life? All my life, yeah. yeah. I started working right away, helping out as I could. I was giving tours by age 10 and mowing the grass around the winery and driving tractors, I think, around 13 or 14. But yeah, uh, grew up with it, fell in love with it, went off, uh, studied the science of grape growing and winemaking, viticulture and enology. worked a few other places, interned in Europe, worked in a huge winery in Canada, and then eventually came back here in 1983.
0: Kind of give people a sense of where Stonehill then fits into things today, not only in this community, but really the nation, because this is, uh, it was built up and a premier winery today.
3: Yes. Uh, you know, for years, we were we were the first winery on the scene in Missouri, post-prevision years, and uh, for a long time, the largest. And uh, now we're the second largest, but we're, we're still... A, big winery nationwide we're a medium-sized winery our focus has been super premium wines from the grapes that are adapted to this climate and so our, our goal is no longer to be the biggest but the best quality is what we're all about and when we look at the track record of winning medals um you know, gosh, we take 33% of the golds most years in the Missouri wine competition. We've uh, been awarded six of the ten awards for the best Norton in the state that we're ever given. Um, a lot of big big awards, uh, two years in a row, best Native American grape variety awarded by the American Wine Society. These are major awards, and we're very proud of that. And that's, that's where we want to be.
0: You know, today we may think of Napa Valley, but what makes... Missouri wines stand out? What makes them so good and what makes them unique perhaps to other wines?
3: We are, you know, it's it's different. Napa, California on a whole is growing European grape varieties. We are growing Native American varieties, are hybrids of Native American and European grapes. These are different species. We have to grow those varieties because of the climatic conditions we have in Missouri, the cold temperatures, high humidity during the summer. And my goal is to make the very best wine we can out of these regional grape varieties and bring them back to the prominence that they had in pre provision years. Stone Hill, back in the day, before Prohibition, was awarded nine gold medals at World Fair competitions. They were declared to have the best red wine of all nations in Vienna at the World's Fair. So, you know, we, we can make phenomenal wine out of these grape varieties. It's just they're not as well known as the Cabernet Sauvignons and the Pinot Noirs and the Chardonnays. But I'll put my wine in a blind tasting against any of the, one of those any day of the week.
0: Stone Hill is a great place to visit, and I love the family lineage they have there. John's son has been studying the industry as well and is already an important part of the business. It's truly a family agricultural operation there in Herman, Missouri. That's all the time we have for this week's show. Remember, you can hear all of our shows at farmingthecountryside.com, on many local radio stations, and on your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow Farming the Countryside on Facebook as well. I appreciate you listening. I'm Andrew McCray. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. This edition of Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven. Turn to a better nitrogen. Learn more at pivotbio.com.